Hey friends, this is Josh Blair and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church and this is our podcast. My prayer for the message you hear today that it will inspire you and encourage you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, please check us out at CVC Madera, both on Facebook and Instagram. And you could check out our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church. Thanks for listening. We're going to be looking at Mark starting in chapter 14 in verse 53 and onward. And this is where Mark is describing what happens to Jesus from the garden until he goes to the cross. And in this part, this portion in verse 53, Mark is describing that Jesus is led from the garden after he's arrested and he's taken to the high priest to face his first trial. Jesus actually faces six trials in six hours. Six trials in six hours. Three religious trials, three civil trials all within a six-hour span. And some theologians say that the very first one, I have the whiteboard up here because you know how much I love whiteboards and you know how much I like to write on them. And uh, I have it out here all chalked out for you, not really chalk, all, what is this Sharpie called? What is this? I have it all expoed out for you. We're going to be walking through it. But the theologians say the very first trial Jesus experienced happened at two in the morning. How many of you have ever said nothing good ever happens after 10 p.m.? It's true, right? Y'all should be sleeping. Nothing good ever happens. And so 2, 2 a.m., 2 in the morning, they arrest Jesus. They take him from the garden and they take him to Annas' house. And if you know Scripture, you understand that there are two active high priests at this point. They should not be. There should be one high priest who, who is a high priest and serves until death, kind of like a Supreme Court judge, right? But... Annas, he was, the, he was the high priest, and when, when Pilate came in, they replaced him with his son Caiaphas, his, his son-in-law. But because he was high priest first, they, the Jewish leaders and religious scholars still had great respect, respect for Annas, so they took Jesus to him first. And in this first trial, at two in the morning, under the cover of darkness, an illegal trial, they begin to question Jesus, John cha- tells us in chapter 18, to see if they can find something to accuse him of. They ask a lot of questions. Uh, John has Jesus answering some of those questions, and they're trying to drum up some type of accusation, some type of uh, lie that would stick to Jesus. They do this for an hour and a half, trying, they're berating him, they're questioning, they're asking him these questions. John tells us that, from, from the point of Annas' house, the former high priest, they take him then uh, to Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law. And that first trial is, that, is trying to find an accusation that will stick. And again, he takes him to his second trial, starting at 3.30 in the morning. Matthew, Mark, and John talk about this encounter. And when we read Mark's gospel... It all happens in chapter 15. It looks like it's all one event. It it looks like everybody's in the room and they're just there trying to figure it out. But really, when we look at the other Gospels to give us a a fuller, broader picture of what's happening here, it is three separate trials that are happening over a four-hour period. First, Annas, they're trying to figure out what will stick. Then he takes him to Caiaphas, who is the standing, acting high priest at the time. And this is where Mark picks up. They begin to ask him these questions, and they have false witnesses coming and lying to Jesus. But he says, even their lies don't line up. 
Even their stories don't match up. Jesus standing there, lying about him to his face. It says in verse 55 of chapter 14 of Mark, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. They were looking for an excuse to kill him and couldn't find anybody. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say he'll destroy the temple that was made with hands, and in three days he'll build another not made with hands. And yet even about this testimony, they could not agree. They're lying. Have you had anybody lie about you and their lies didn't match up? That's why it's, it's always good not to lie, because you can tell a little lie, and then it has to grow to a bigger lie and to a bigger lie. And back, by the time you get to the biggest lie you're in, all the stuff doesn't, the story doesn't add up anymore. You get caught up. They're, they're sitting there, they're standing there lying about Jesus, and yet they're disagreeing about their lies. Then in verse 60, it says, And the high priest, this is Caiaphas, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What, if, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus, in his second of six trials, that he'll face on that Good Friday for us. He remained silent in the face of false accusation and lies. My question for us this morning is how could he do it? How could Jesus remain silent in the face of all these lies and accusations and all these illegal trials? We know that the prophet Isaiah told us that he would be silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. But how could he remain silent? I think the answer is this. He knew the purpose of the trials. Jesus knew the purpose of why he was going through what he was going through. And because he knew the purpose, he could remain silent in the face of accusation and lies about him. This is something that's completely foreign to us today, right? If we hear a false statement made by a leader or by a politician, we're like, oh, this person is a lying dog, and let me tell you all the reasons why they're filthy liars. Yes? And then the other side's like, oh, no, you're lying, and you're a bunch of liars. We don't know what it means to be silent in our society against false accusation. Perhaps because we don't know the purpose of the trial that we're in. But Jesus knew the purpose, didn't he? Jesus knew the plan that was worked out even in the midst of the lies and the false accusations that were all around him. Here's a, here's a testimony for us today, church, of what we're in today. I began to watch a documentary last night with my, with my wife called Social Dilemma. I encourage all of you to watch it. It'll cause you to put all your phones away and never go on internet again. But we started watching it, and one statement this man said at the end of the documentary, he said that no one knows what truth is anymore. Because everybody has their own truth. And no one knows where to find truth anymore. And he just left it at that. And I began to spill a stirring in my spirit and says, no, I do know where to find truth. I do know the one who is truth, and his name is Jesus. And the solution for the problems that ail us today is to turn to Jesus. To find the one who holds the truth, who is the truth. And we have a society that is ripped apart at the seams where we can no longer have social discourse and, and still love people because we have our own truth. And we stand on that truth thinking it's the only truth when Jesus said, no, the only truth that you can truly stand on is me. I am the foundation of your faith. I am the structure of truth. And so 
Jesus knew the purpose. He knew the plan. Looking back at these trials, they're filled with, uh, these illegal trials are filled with false witnesses under the cover of darkness because they were ashamed to bring him and accuse him in the light of day under false testimonies. But as the, as the sun begins to rise, Luke's gospel tells us that as the sun comes up, they have to have something that they can accuse him of. All right, guys, the sun's coming up. We can't, we can't hide this anymore. We've got to accuse him. We've got to have something stick. So they come together with the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling class of the Jewish people. And Caiaphas is there with him. And this is happening in Mark as well. The Sanhedrin, they, they begin to talk and say, hey, the sun's coming up. We need to have something. We need to act quickly on the accusation that will stick. And in Mark 14, 61, again, the high priest, he says, Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the beloved? This is the question they should have been asking him ever since he started. And yet they wait because now they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for an accusation. Verse 62 says this, Jesus said, I am. And, I, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do we need? You have heard him, his blasphemy. What is your decision? He turns to the council, to the Sanhedrin. He says, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him saying, prophesy, prophesy. And the guards, it says, received him with blows. They started to beat him, spit in his face and mock him. And we can grow angry. We can grow angry. I grow, I, I'm so angry at this, but then I remember it's my sin that did that to Jesus. It's our sin and the sin of the world that caused the Son of God to be sped upon and beaten and mocked. My sin. And your sin. And what's so powerful that as Jesus was being beaten, they covered his face, hit him, and said, Tell us who hit you. Prophesy to us. In that very moment, his prophecy that he spoke to Peter on Thursday night, saying, You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice, was happening in that moment. He was, his prophecies were coming true while they were mocking him to prophesy. Jesus, the Son of God, endured at the hands of wicked men, being spat upon, mocked, and beaten. Three trials. Three religious trials. From this point on, they move him now to have three civil trials. They take him to Pontius Pilate. John's gospel tells us in chapter 18 that the Jewish leaders handed him over to the Roman authorities because it was unlawful for them to put anyone to death. Capital punishment was reserved only for the Romans. And John tells us that these religious leaders, they, they were so concerned about their own ritual purity that they wouldn't step foot into Pontius Pilate's home because they were afraid that they would become defiled by stepping into a Gentile's home and they wouldn't be allowed to partake in Passover. The irony here, church, is so unreal. They've illegally tried Jesus in the cover of darkness. 
They've beat him illegally, spit upon his face. They've done all this stuff under the cover of darkness and under the cover of lies. And they're going to take him to be executed while at the same time concerned with their own ritual purity. That is what religion is. That is what religion does. That's why Jesus called these men whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. This is what religion does to us. It makes us more consumed with our outward expression more than our inward transformation. It makes us more concerned about how we look and how others perceive us, and, and that we're not even concerned about what's going on the inside of us. We'll lie about it. We, we'll think evil things, and we'll do evil things in secret, but as long as we look good on Sunday, everything's all right. May God have mercy on us that we would not be like the Pharisees and like these men who are bound by religion who try to look, do everything right on the outside, but inside we're dead because we're pushing Jesus away. Pilate begins to question Jesus, and he asks him this famous question that made me think about the documentary last night when Jesus said, I came to reveal the truth, and Pilate says, what is truth? He asks the question when he's staring truth right in the face. This is what our world's looking for today. What is truth? What is truth? We can't find it. We don't know where to look. All the while, the church holds truth, and we won't even share it. My professor said this week, last two weekends ago in, in one of my seminary classes, when Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, which means there are more people ready to listen than there are who are ready to share. If that doesn't shake us, church, there are more people ready to receive the truth than there are who are willing to share the truth. And we have to be people who say, not on my watch, not today. I will stand up for truth and I'll share truth for those who are ready to receive it. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? All the while, the religious leaders are lying about him right to his face. And after this first trial of Pilate, Luke's gospel tells us that Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod because he realizes that Jesus is from Galilee and Herod has legal uh, reign over that area, so he sends him off. And Herod begins to ask him questions and tries to figure things out. Jesus remains silent there as well because he knows what the trial's about and the purpose on the other end of it, so he says nothing. They mock Jesus again, dress him, Luke tells us, in fancy robes, and then they send him back to Pilate. And then it tells us Herod and Pilate, who were at odds with each other, became best friends that day. Isn't it odd that enemies can become friends when they want to fight against the church and against God? So Herod and Pilate become friends, and Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And now it's 7.30 in the morning. Some of us have had long nights, but not nights like this. Six trials in less than six hours. And Jesus now finally stands before the people for his sixth trial. And Pilate, it says, Mark, Ma uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us about this exchange where Pilate offers up a prisoner that he releases as customary on Passover. You know which one it is. He brings out Jesus and he brings out this murderous thug, Barabbas. Do you remember? 
I preached about I am Barabbas. In the Old Testament, it talks about the scapegoat. Do you know the scapegoat? Where they would put the they would put their hands on these goats, these sacrifice the sacrificial animals, and they would put the sin upon the scapegoat, and they would let one goat go free into the wilderness, and the other one they would keep to sacrifice. That was a picture of what's happening on this day, Good Friday. That Jesus is going to take the place of a murderous, convicted thug. And we are the ones who are the murderous thugs in this story. So Jesus has said on, the, on, the, on his sixth trial, Mark chapter 15, verse 11 says this, The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate asked them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out against him, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Listen to this, verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There's a couple things I want to point out about this passage of Scripture. The first one is this, never go along with the crowd. Never go along with the crowd. The crowd that was shouting to crucify Jesus was the same crowd five days earlier that was shouting Hosanna when he rode into the city. The same crowd that was praising him on his way in is the same crowd that was shouting for his death on the way out. Popular opinion is not always the right opinion. Often it is the wrong opinion. And the crowd is so easily persuaded and swayed so that if you find yourself in the crowd, you might be going the wrong direction. Church, we need to be a people who know what we believe and we're willing to stand up for it regardless if it's popular opinion or not. Regardless if it's acceptable to the masses or not. Regardless if it makes us popular or not, we have to stand for the truth. The second thing that I want to point out from this exchange between the people and Pilate is Pilate's role in all of this. Mark's gospel says that he wanted to please the crowd. He wanted to satisfy the crowd, so he gave in to what they wanted. Matthew's gospel tells us, he adds this part of the story where it says, Pilate turned and washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And perhaps you read that and you say, oh, Pilate wanted to do the right thing, so he washes hands and he's free of it. But just because Pilate was passive does not mean he was innocent. He had the ability to say, no, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to listen. This man has done nothing wrong. And yet, because he sought to, to please the crowd, he had Jesus beaten, flogged, and tortured on the cross, all so that he could appease a loud voice. Jesus knew, or Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, and still he sent him off to be tortured. What's the translation for us today? That there are so many things going on in our world right now, even in our country, that need to be addressed and spoken against. And to remain passive on these issues does not mean that we remain innocent on them. God has given us a voice, each believer, to stand up for the truth and what is right. And we continue, if we continue to keep quiet and passive to appease the crowd and to go along, to get along, we're no better than them. We have to be able to understand who we are, what is our role in this place, and stand up for truth, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's not popular. 
because we're seeking to please God and not man. Church, we're in a season of great trials, and we can learn from these trials of Jesus, the trials that he faced on that Good Friday over 2,000 years ago. Six trials in six hours. These trials were unfair, unjust, and yet they were all a part of God's plan and purpose. So many of us think, look, I'll go through some stuff only if it's fair, only if it's just, only if I agree with the trial that I'm going through. And, and if, as if it's, if it's fair, it's of God. If it's unfair, it's not. But we can look at the trials of Jesus and say, these were all full of lies. All unfair and unjust, and yet they fit into God's plan of salvation. What can we learn from these trials of Jesus, and what, can it, what does it show us about Jesus? First, Jesus was able to go through the trials because he knew their purpose. Even though they were illegal, full of lies, full of abuse, so much more, he knew what was on the other side of it. Because he knew God's plan, he could stand. Because he knew the plan, he could stand. Second, Jesus went through multiple trials for the same purpose. Sometimes, I don't know if you've heard this before, but you know when we go through trials in life, and we, we repeat a trial or we, we repeat an issue, we think, man, something's wrong with me. Why do I keep going back? What's wrong with this? And that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that something's wrong with you. It means perhaps that God is trying to fulfill something through the trial that you're going through. A lot of us don't want to go through trials at all, let alone six trials in one day, can you imagine? But Jesus was able to endure even, even though these trials all had one purpose, he was still able to endure them. Perhaps God is wanting to accomplish something in you today through the trials of your life. And just because you go through a trial after trial after trial does not mean that God has abandoned you. Perhaps there is something greater on the other side of it if you're willing to continue to stay faithful. But here's probably the most important lesson that we can learn from these trials that Jesus faced. Jesus went through six trials Three religious. These religious trials all called him guilty. Then he went through three civil trials. They all said that he was innocent and still sent him to death. But there was still one trial left. Knowing that in Scripture there's a lot of symbolism and meaning behind numbers, began to question why, God, did you stop at six trials when seven is the number of completion and perfection? Wouldn't it have been just great for one more trial so we could see that it was all complete and finished? And what's interesting about Scripture is that there was a final trial that Jesus was going to face, and it happened on the cross. It was the trial of God the Father as judge. As he began to judge sin on our behalf, the sin that Jesus bore on the cross, this is when the moment he began to feel the judgment of God's wrath upon sin Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God could not look upon sin. He had to turn from it. And Jesus began to feel the weight of the wrath of God's judgment. And it was in that final trial that Jesus was deemed worthy to be our sacrifice. Three religious trials said he's guilty. Three civil trials said he's innocent, but yet the final judge stepped in and said, no, no. He's worthy. He's worthy. 
He's worthy to bear the weight of your sin. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is worthy to redeem a world that is undone without me. The God, God, the judge, the father stepped in and he passed down this final verdict, the perfect verdict that the penalty of sin was paid for through the death of his perfect son, Jesus. And all who would put their faith and trust in him would be covered by that sacrifice and that sin would no longer have power over them and that by believing in this sacrifice, they would have eternal life with him forever. The final judgment was done on the cross for us, declaring Jesus worthy and those who believe in him as innocent because we were washed by the blood of the Lamb. This is the gospel, church. Jesus was falsely tried, falsely accused, mocked, beaten, whipped, spit upon, and nailed to a cross. He went through trials. He was abandoned, and the final verdict came and called him worthy. Humanity could not agree on who he was, but God the Father could. Humanity couldn't figure out if he was guilty or innocent, but God knew that Jesus was worthy. And to show the worth and his power, he rose from the grave. He conquered death, hell, and the grave for all who would believe in him. This is powerful. What, what does this show me? That our salvation is not in religious ritual or tradition. And our salvation is not in the politics of today or politicians who promise things that they can't keep. But our salvation is found in the one who's been deemed worthy by his sacrifice on the cross for us. What is the hope of our world today? It's Jesus and him alone. Who do we need to be on the throne? Jesus and no one else. Where do we put our trust? In Christ alone. Amen? Church, this world is still divided on who Jesus is, but for those of us who know him, we all agree. He is the Son of God. He is our Savior and our Lord. He is our hope. He is our life. And we can stand firm in him because he endured for us. I can stand firm for Jesus because he endured for me. Lies, false accusations, beatings, whipped and crucified. He endured all the way so I can stand firm for him. Here's my big takeaway, church. Jesus has paid it all for you. He has endured and he has overcame. And he is still overcoming for you today. He has not stopped overcoming for you. So no matter what trials you're facing today, Jesus has already overcome them. Put your faith in him that he will see you through it because there's a purpose and a plan on the other side of it. It's what he told his disciples when we walk through chapter 14. I'll meet you on the other side. No matter what you might be up against today, look to Jesus. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He will see us through. He has shown us he is strong enough. He can be trusted. He will endure. And we can stand with him. He knows the purpose of our trials. He knows what we're going through. And he stands firm with us. Amen? We have to put our trust in Jesus today. He endured it on the cross, abandoned, ridiculed. His disciples scattered, but he gave us this promise. 
that after three days he would rise again. And then he would meet his disciples and he would pour out his spirit on them. That the spirit of the living God would dwell with us and be with us. So today, church, as we come to a close, I want to pray for those of us who are with, uh, who are under the sound of my voice today. First, for those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, and then I want to pray for those who do. As the worship team would come, I want to close out our time this morning. I want to pray for you if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you've never put your hope and trust in him, if you've never surrendered your life to him, I pray that this morning you would understand the sacrifice of Jesus for you. That he endured all of this hardship, all of these lies and accusations, all of these beatings. He endured the cross to set you free. And our prayer is that you would recognize his sacrifice and surrender your life to him. Put your hope and trust in him. If you're looking for hope, you're looking for life, you're looking for the truth, it is found only in Jesus. And this morning, this is your opportunity to accept this truth and to accept this sacrifice and to accept the fact that Jesus is worthy to pay for your sin. And if you'll accept his sacrifice, put your trust in him, then you'll receive the verdict of innocent because you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Without him, you still hold a guilty verdict. Without him, you will still have to pay for the for the punishment of your own sin and wrongdoings. But with him, the Bible says, you have been cleansed and made new. So right now, this morning, if you want to accept Jesus into your heart and life, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Those of you who have a relationship, begin to pray right now that God would bring in those who are lost without him, those who don't have a relationship. Pray for their hearts right now. Repeat these words after me. Those who want to give your life to you, say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am lost without you. I am broken without you. Right now, I ask you come and wash me. Come and cleanse me. I accept your sacrifice. I receive it with joy. Make me a new creation today. I trust you and I love you. I turn from my life of sin and I turn to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer, I want you to let us know right now in the comment section. You can fill out our eConnect card that'll help us get connected with you and walk this journey out. This is the beginning for you and learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we want to help you stay connected. So we're so excited, so happy that you've given your life to Christ. Let us know about it so that we can partner with you. For the rest of us this morning who have relationship with Jesus, I want to pray that you would be encouraged today, that you would feel emboldened today, that you would be able to stand firm in the face of opposition and trial, that you would be willing to stand for the truth even when it's not popular, even when it might mean your rejection, because Christ was rejected for us. Where did my board go? There it goes. Christ was rejected for us, and yet he stood firm. So I want to pray with you. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, let me say this prayer over you this morning. 
that God would strengthen you and the Holy Spirit would come and indwell with you and give you a boldness. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would be with every believer. God, you know the hardships that they're going through. You know the trials that they may be facing, maybe sickness in their body, maybe financial issues, maybe strains in relationship or marriage. And I pray that, God, you would come into that situation and speak your truth. That, God, they are able to stand firm and endure. God, that you would give them peace. God, that you would be with them, Lord. That, God, you would empower and strengthen your people and remind them today that they are not alone. They are not abandoned. You have not forsaken them. You've not turned your back on them. You still stand with them. And I pray, God, as they put their hope and trust in you, I pray that they would feel the empowerment of your Holy Spirit surging through them again. That, God, they would be able to, to endure and stand firm on who you are, Jesus. And that you would fill them with your love, with your grace, with your compassion, and with your mercy. And that, God, they would be able to be lights in dark places. That, God, they would, they would shine truth in the middle of lies. God, that you would be with your people today and they would be encouraged by you, Lord. You see them. You hear them. You know them. And God, because you endured, we can stand firm. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. And we say today, Jesus, that we will run after you. We will pursue you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and we will show love to our neighbors the way that you've called to love. Father, we love you so much and we thank you. I thank you for your church. I thank you for your people. Be with them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel to hear past episodes. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate it and share it with your friends. It helps us out a lot. If you're interested in supporting the ministry of Central Valley Church, go to cvcmadera.churchcenter.com for more information. We love you. God bless.